If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to the holiday special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. One of the mysteries we're dealing with on this broadcast this year is Christmas music. People love Christmas songs, no matter whether they would listen to songs of that type by that particular singer any other time of the year. In another interview on this broadcast, we deal with what makes them special musically. But why do people of all beliefs seem to love these songs so? And why is it we love hearing singers we'd never put together for anything else singing together at Christmas? Case in point, this famous cut of Bing Crosby and David Bowie in 1977. Can it be? Now, nothing about that should work, and yet it does. It makes us feel better. Brian Rabinovitz is a lecturer at the College of William and Mary, whose expertise is the neuroscience of music. Good to have you with us. Happy holidays, Brian. Happy holidays to you. It's good to be here. So, you know, you're just the kind of guy we need to get our head around. Ziggy Stardust meets the crooner. But before we do that... What exactly is the neuroscience of music? That's a big question. Um, there, it kind of depends on what aspect you want to study, uh, because music impacts us in so many ways. Um, I think the focus you have right now is you know, why do we like it so much? Why do we enjoy it? And you could go to the most stripped down, simplified, basic answer, which probably would be listening to music activates reward pathways in the brain. It really activates the same areas that are ultimately going to be activated uh, from really anything else we find pleasurable, whether it's, you know, delicious food or drugs or anything else that, you know, we enjoy. Even just somebody we like smiling at us can activate these same areas, obviously to varying degrees, depending on the intensity of the stimuli. And also when you see uh, two people who, you know, one loves a piece of music and one doesn't, 
you could probably take a guess that those reward pathways are being activated more intensely for the person who loves the music. Uh, All of that doesn't answer a bigger question, which is, why does it activate those pathways? One of the interesting things about Christmas music is that, as we've talked about, it's it's played on radio stations all over the country, beginning, used to begin at Thanksgiving, now begins like in October in some places. And they wouldn't do that unless it made people happy, brought in big ratings and all that kind of thing. What is it about this music? What does it evoke? What does it do to our brains that makes us so happy, whether our memories of the day itself and our own personal lives are happy or not? Uh, I think it's a combination of factors. Uh, One would be what I just said before, right? Music in general makes us happy. And I don't think when you're looking at Christmas music or holiday music, I don't think there's something intrinsic to the composition. I don't think there's something unique to uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer that um, other music couldn't, uh, that we listen to at other times of the year doesn't also contain. Um, I think that part of it is just general properties of music. And then another major component is the associative memories we form, particularly if we limit ourselves to playing this holiday music at only a specific time of the year, and we don't listen to it as much across the rest of the year, it forms a very strong association with all of the other events of the holidays. Um, And so if you have other positive memories, uh, whether it's from childhood or whether it's from last week uh, of December or November, right, or whatever it is during the holidays, um, and the music gets associated with that, then when you hear the music, it's probably going to trigger those memories. Um, that's actually another interesting thing about music that can be very powerful is uh, music can elicit autobiographical memories, memories of our, of our lifetime, particularly memories that uh, were created at the time we were hearing music. Music can be a powerful tool to elicit those things. And it actually turns out that there's particular areas in the prefrontal cortex um, that are activated both when we're listening to music, um, these are areas that track the sort of melodic structure, basically the contours of music, how much are these notes going up and down. And even if you've never taken uh, any music theory class and you don't understand theory at all, your brain is still doing this. It's still tracking about how much is this going up and going down in terms of the relation between notes. And that's why if you hear Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in one key and then you hear it in another key, Uh, you recognize it as the same song, even though it's a little higher or lower in pitch. Uh, And it's because you're recognizing that relationship. And that particular area in the brain, it's part of the medial prefrontal cortex uh, that does this tonality tracking. It also seems to be involved in retrieving autobiographical memories. And so it's not a surprise or a shock that uh, music can often evoke autobiographical memories in a rather powerful way. And so particularly with this holiday music, you're listening to it uh, in around the holidays, uh, and uh, it is often encountered at the same time you're having other emotions. Uh, and if they're positive emotions, it's going to elicit those positive memories. Uh, also, I think the flip side would be if somebody has a very hard time during the holidays and has a lot of negative associations with those, they're probably going to have a very different reaction to that holiday music. Christmas songs seem to be another category. People can hear 57 versions of the same song during the holiday, and they probably will, uh, and they're perfectly fine with it. With music, expectations matter um, in a very uh, significant way. Um, there's a uh, another researcher uh, named David Huron 
who has a theory, the ITPRA theory, that I won't go into all the details of. This theory is trying to explain uh, why music might activate those reward pathways. And it largely focuses on expectations. When you're exposed to stimuli, and it really doesn't matter if it's music or anything else you could see or hear, there's going to be sensory processing pathways in the brain that will process this information. And it's not just one processing pathway. And there's one pathway that will process things very, very quickly. We could call it the rapid pathway. And it will go um, through multiple areas of the brain. But most critically, it will end on an area of the brain known as the amygdala that um, is heavily associated with emotion. And honestly, it's most associated with fear. Um, And it seems that we're kind of primed to sort of have an initial fearful response to all kinds of stimuli, kind of unknown stimuli. Um, Think about the example of somebody walking into a room for a surprise party for uh, for that person and not knowing there's going to be a surprise party. They turn on the lights, everyone yells surprise, and there's an immediate split second of (gasps) fear that then is followed by, oh, everything's okay, and the laugh and the smile. And that fear is this really rapid pathway. Um, And then there's a slower pathway that takes some similar routes as this rapid pathway, but it goes through part of the frontal lobe, uh, the prefrontal cortex, before it also ends on the amygdala. And that slower pathway may come to a very different uh, determination of the stimuli. Oh, it's not danger. It's not a threat. And it could, in turn, turn off the amygdala. And so you get that initial fear that then gets turned off. And that contrast uh, may actually drive some of that pleasurable response. Um, So expectations really matter. And when you're talking about holiday music, um, you know, where I said before that anything that's sort of unexpected could be initially interpreted as a threat. And that could be whether you're talking about people yelling surprise at that surprise party or uh, just hearing a cover of a song and a note is a little bit higher than you expect or the singer, you know, does a little adds a little extra uh, vibrato on a note or something that's just different than the way you heard it before. Anything like that is a surprise and somewhat of a violation of an expectation. But you may uh, hear that surprise and come to the conclusion, I like it, uh, or at least it's not a threat, it's not a problem, and in, and ultimately kind of enjoy it. Uh, we know them so well, it's not like we're going to feel terribly shortchanged if we don't get the identical version. Uh, and so... Uh, I, I do think it's an area that is very uh, ripe for uh, covers and for uh, playing around a little bit with some of these uh, classic pieces. And a good thing that works because otherwise uh, for you know two months, we'd be hearing just like the same 12 recordings over and over again. So it's all good. Brian Rabinovitz is a lecturer at the College of William and Mary. His expertise is neuroscience of music and uh Now maybe we know a little more about why we enjoy this music so much. Brian, thank you. Happy holidays. Uh, Thank you for having me. Happy holidays to you and all the listeners. We have more of the holiday special from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the holiday special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. We are looking at a lot of holiday music in this year's broadcast, and somebody who has done a lot of holiday music is Judy Collins. The voice of a generation, her recordings have introduced many songwriters, including herself, to the world, and has, over the years, released a number of Christmas albums, including Christmas at Biltmore Estate, which is also a DVD, a Judy Collins Christmas, and Winter Stories. The holly bears the 
Happy holidays. Oh, thanks so much, and happy holidays to you. I've never asked you about this. What was Christmas like for you growing up in Colorado? Oh, we always had fabulous Christmases and, you know, great big Christmas Eve dinners and singing songs. And um, my my mother would also, they had been making fruitcake. Well, they would bake the fruitcake, my mother would, in September. And then they would uh, pour rum, pour rum on it, for the next three or four months, until if you walked by the, <laughs> the closet where it was, you could practically pass out from getting drunk on the smell. Um, we did not open our presents on Christmas Eve because, well, you know, we were Methodists, and we had some Presbyterian friends who opened on Christmas Eve, but not us. And then we'd have this wonderful. Christmas uh, morning of opening presents and and then there'd be a big Christmas dinner. We had the whole thing going on. It was wonderful. And I had a job in the summers when I was younger in Colorado selling wreaths also in September. It was the wreaths and the fruitcake that were going on in September in preparation for Christmas. And I had to take orders for wreaths in September um, that I had to then deliver for people in in that, well, it was a job, you know. <laughs> I try, I did it as well as I could possibly do it. I think if you hadn't thrown it away on this musical career, you could have, you know, dominated wreath sales in the United States. <laughs> right. So what kind of songs were you all singing at home in those days? Because you started out as a classical pianist, not as a folk singer. So what kind of music was going on at that time for you? My life was really filled with music and with study and working all the time at what I did. I had to played the piano and played with an orchestra when I was 13. So when I hit the ground running and when I was 15 years old and heard Barbara Allen and the Gypsy Rover, I just took off like a shot. I got my father to get me a guitar and I started my career in what one of my brothers called the Great Folk Scare. Which is hilarious when you think about it, because years later, I got you a copy of that album because this whole thing started not with hearing, you know, Woody Guthrie or Pete Seeger or somebody like that, but by hearing Joe Stafford, who was generally a pop singer singing songs in this one album like Barbara Allen and doing folk music. Twas in the merry month of May when the green birds were swelling Yes, and it's an interesting story, and thank you. That was so wonderful to get that from you. She had a big career, of course, on uh, Capitol with her husband, and they made tons of records, and she had tons of hits. And then she she started recording on their label, which was a little label, an offshoot label, and she did recorded all of her Scottish <clears throat> favorite Scottish songs. So that was the that was the, the the person that I was listening to. The DJ in nineteen fifty five was playing a song from her nineteen fifty four album of songs, which included things like The Streets of Laredo 
and other other folk songs. Now, Judy, you've been a part of the civil rights movement since I can remember. You have had your voice out there when it was necessary to stir things up, and that's part of your many albums. But what's interesting about the music for this time of year is it's mostly about warm memories, but it is also like some of the music about civil rights and such about reconciliation and peace. It it certainly is, and. I think that's what we've been working on all the time. So now is the time of enlightenment and I hope change, great change. Another part, thinking about your Christmas repertoire, is like the rest of your singing, it's a very expansive kind of music. It includes everything from traditional carols like Away in a Manger to popular things like Sammy Kahn and Julie Stein's Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow. So how do you pick songs for your Christmas albums? How do you go from carols to pop songs like that? Other than what fits you musically, have you? how have you chosen Christmas repertoire? Oh, I've chosen, you know, once I had a, I had a, a brief career as an actor on a, um, on a movie called, or a series called Christie. It was about a young girl who went to the South to open a school. And, um, Tyne Daly was on the show with me and we went, I went back a number of times, a few months and it became violently hot in the summer. And so Tyne Daly and I would stand out and with umbrellas over our heads and sing Christmas songs to keep us cool. And of course, when you record an album of songs about Christmas, you do it in July so that it will be ready and prepared to come out in in November, actually. So it'll hit the market in December. And I've done that a few times, as you said. And so Joy to the World and um, Noel, Noel, and and Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas come up as well as these kind of obscure Christmas songs. I can't let you go without asking about somebody we have not had the time to talk about yet and pops up in other parts of the show because of West Side Story opening this month, and that's Stephen Sondheim, who just passed away. You gave him something I'm not sure he ever expected to have as a composer, as successful as he was, which was a pop chart hit twice. The first time, Send in the Clowns was up there for 11 weeks. The next year, for 19 weeks, it was also Song of the Year at the Grammys. So what are your remembrances of Stephen? Well, this was um, a small miracle for me and for him as well. I'm not so sure he was happy about having a, a pop hit. I don't know if he felt it. It just detracted from his work in the theater. I'm not sure. However, Hal Prince and I became very good friends over the the last years of Hal's life, and we used to sit down and have lunch together. And he would tell me how what a huge difference that song made in well, not only Little Night Music, the play, but in Stephen Sondheim's life as a writer. So I think I think in perpetuity it helped him in a, in a way that he. <laughs> He, as you said, he didn't necessarily expect it or welcome it, but it did change things for him. And with me, it was another one of those miracles. I was walking around, scratching my head and saying, what shall I do next? In 1973, and my friend Nancy Bacall called me. She was best friends with Leonard Cohen and became best friends with me after I met Leonard. And she said, I know you're troubled by what's going to happen next but I have this album I want to send you and she sent me a copy of Little Night Music and circled the song and that's how I found Send in the Clouds and when I called the name on the on the album that I knew which was Hal Prince 
he answered my phone calls, which first of all surprised me because I don't necessarily think of myself as, you know, a public, uh, known, publicly known person, <laughs> certainly not in 73. And he said, oh, I know you. You're the, the both sides now girl, aren't you? And I said, yes. And I said, you have a wonderful song on this album. And he said, yes, and in the clowns. He said, a lot of people love it. He said, in fact, this was in 73. Little Night Music had been out since February. I think it was maybe April or May. And he said, well, you know, 200 people have already recorded it. <laughs> and I said, I don't care. I have to record it. And, of course, then I said, who should I go to for the orchestration? And he said, of course, you go to Jonathan Tuning. That was the genius because Jonathan included in his orchestration the line in the oboe in the English horn. And that gets it, you know, that kind of brings it home. Judy, pleasure talking to you again. Happy holidays. Judy Collins, whose album at the Biltmore Estate, which is also a beautiful DVD. Judy Collins' Christmas, Winter Stories, and apropos of the last part of our conversation, a love letter to Stephen Sondheim. All make lovely late presents for people and a new album, as he said, coming out in February. Judy, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, dear. Much love to you, Gil. Happy, happy holidays and Merry Christmas to everybody. The clouds there ought to be clouds. Well, maybe next This is the holiday special from CBS News Radio. CBS Mornings, weekdays on CBS. If you turn on the TV to almost any channel that shows movies this time of year, you will see some version of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. For a story that came very much from its time and its place, the universality at its heart has made it a favorite not only around the world, but even with people who don't celebrate Christmas. And to get a flavor of the where and when and the man that this story came from, Mo Rocca of CBS Sunday Morning let this man take him back in time. This is the heartland of A Christmas Carol. This is where we start. This is where we have Scrooge's Counting House. It's based in the alleyways of the heart of the city of London. If you want to see London through the eyes of Charles Dickens, you could have uh, gangs waiting in the alleyways. Tour guide Richard Jones is your man. It's a foggy Christmas Eve, and gas lamps are lighting up. You can imagine the people coming out of doors, and they're coughing, and they're wheezing, and they're rubbing their hands together, stamping their feet desperate to keep warm and this is where it all begins. You're so. transporting me right now <laughs> and any talk of Dickens in December conjures only one thing a Christmas carol. No Christmas was complete without somebody in the family taking out a copy of a Christmas carol and reading it to the household. A Christmas Carol published as a novella in 1843 tells the story of Ebenezer Scrooge a miserly and miserable old businessman 
who on Christmas Eve is haunted by three ghosts. You're the spirit. I'm not the man I was. Believe me, I'm not the man I was. Ultimately deciding to mend his ways and spread cheer all around him. Uncle Scrooge! In an ending sweeter than a figgy pudding. But you already knew that. What you may not know is Dickens' personal connection to the story. Had Dickens himself been poor? Dickens in his childhood had faced um, great hardship. His father was riddled with debt trouble. Louisa Price is the head curator of the Charles Dickens Museum. And at one point his father was thrown into jail for debt. And at that time, as a young boy, only 12 years old, he had to work in a blacking factory to make ends meet and to support his family. Price says those early experiences influenced much of Dickens' work. With A Christmas Carol, he wanted to address serious social ills that continued to plague the poor in Victorian England. And he decided that he was going to write a political pamphlet. However, a few days later, he wrote to a friend and said, I'm not going to do the political pamphlet. I'm going to put out something at Christmas time, and that's going to have 20 times the force. So this is the drawing room. The museum is in the London house, where Dickens, already established, once lived with his family. Did the family celebrate Christmas in this room? Yes, so over the Christmas period, Dickens would have invited his extended family to come and celebrate the season here in this house. The Dickens' own Yuletide traditions show up in the story and would influence the way readers celebrated Christmas. There are records of various people in London who decided after reading A Christmas Carol that they were going to go out and buy a turkey and make sure that that was part of their Christmas meal. In the 172 years since it was first published, A Christmas Carol has never been out of print. It's been adapted into stage productions and into at least 50 movie and television versions. It may surprise you which one our experts think is the most faithful. I think that you probably can't go wrong with um, A Muppet's Christmas Carol. I think The Muppet's one, if not the best version, it's certainly up there with the best versions because it gets the meaning. Let us all who gather here, the loving family I hold dear. Christmas is not about you, it's about other people. And I think the Muppets do get that, and it's such a warm version. I will hold you close in a thankful heart. For many, it seems that the story of A Christmas Carol has become the meaning of Christmas. It has, for, for, for many people, uh, Christmas Carol is an integral part of Christmas, and it has been since it was written in 1843. The, the interesting thing is, I, I often refer to it as being the, the second most famous Christmas story ever told. The first being, well, you know. It's almost like a Christmas present in its own right, and it's Dickens' present to the world. God bless us. God bless us. Everyone. And if the Muppets version we heard them talking about isn't your speed, there have been plenty of others. Let's go through a few. And Doctor Who's on first. Is there such person as Father Christmas? Oh, yeah. Me and Father Christmas, Frank Sinatra's Hunting Lodge, 1952. When you think about it, it's amazing that the British science fiction series took half a century and 11 people playing the Doctor before they got around to adapting Dickens for Christmas. Now, Disney did not get around to the story until 1983, with Scrooge McDuck playing, well, guess who? really needs to talk to his agent about typecasting. Disney stock villain Pete is one of the ghosts who warns Scrooge how little his money can buy in eternity. Why, yours, Ebenezer, the richest man in the cemetery. And the film most considered the best 
from back in 1951, stars Alistair Sim, who plays Scrooge as he was in the original story, less an incarnation of evil and more a man haunted by loneliness, who feared being charitable and friendly would be seen as weakness, not strength. From now on, I want to try to help you to raise that family of yours, if you'll let me. Now, we could leave this on a down note with Bill Murray in Scrooged. Instead, let's let Tiny Tim have one of the last words of so many of these films. God bless us, everyone. Welcome back to the Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. There are plenty of songs about Christmas, but the holiday with which it goes hand in hand, New Year's Eve, not so much. The Eagles tried. Barry Manilow gave it a shot. It's just another New Year's Eve, another night like all the rest. It's just another. Taylor Swift. Midnights, but I'll be cleaning up bottles with you on New Year's Day. And of course, you too. Nothing changes on New Year's Day. And yet the song that comes to mind for almost everyone on New Year's Eve is this. It is one of the most familiar melodies in the English-speaking world. But the words, well, even if we do remember them, we might not be sure of what they mean. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and days a lang syne? For old lang syne, my dear, for old lang syne. We'll tack a cup of kindness yet for old lang syne. Old lang syne is sung by millions of people around the world on New Year's Eve, but not many of them can explain what old lang syne means. So how did a song we barely understand become the official song of New Year's Eve? Well, this story involves an 18th century Scottish poet, a Canadian big band leader, and a revolutionary new medium called the CBS Radio Network. It all starts back in the 1700s with a Scottish poet named Robert Burns. Now, Bobby Burns remains one of the world's most beloved poets, which is all the more remarkable when you consider that he was raised in poverty in a family of tenant farmers, kind of like what we would call sharecroppers. His rise to fame is even more surprising because Burns made the unpopular choice to write his poems in his native language, which we now call Scots-English. If you wanted to succeed as a writer in Scotland at that time, you were expected to write in the King's English, which became the official language of the church and the government in Scotland when Great Britain was formed at the beginning of the 18th century, uniting England, Scotland, and Wales into one nation ruled by the King of England. But Robert Burns became a Scottish hero for refusing to cave in to the societal pressure and demanded his poetry be written in his native tongue, the language of the common people. After his first collection of poems became a mega-hit, Burns began collecting and transcribing folk songs of the Scottish people. One of these songs he said he transcribed from an old man singing. But Burns only wrote the words for the song. The melody, like many folk songs and hymns at the time, was taken from an existing song. In fact, the melody we today associate with Auld Lang Syne was the same tune people used to sing America the Beautiful to at the turn of the 20th century. That song originally was a poem written by Catherine Bates called Pike's Peak. The words of America the Beautiful were a perfect fit for a melody many people were familiar with and could sing. And like many songs at that time, if the words fit, have a hit. Oh, you, you 
Meanwhile, back in Scotland, the words and music of Auld Lang Syne became a Scottish tradition at the year's end Scots celebration called Hogmanay. Auld Lang Syne quickly became a tradition within that holiday. The song took on a life of its own, especially in the classical music world. Franz Joseph Haydn wrote an arrangement. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and days of like sign? For old like sign, my dear, for old like sign, we'll take a couple kind of sweat for old like sign. Ludwig von Beethoven even wrote an arrangement of it. And by the way, if that tempo seems odd for a song we now sing ever so slowly, it is actually much closer to the original pace it would have been sung at when Scots would dance to it. The old song even started to show up in other songs, such as George M. Cohen's You're a Grand Old Flag. Here's James Cagney as Cohen in the movie musical Yankee Doodle Dandy. Listen for it. Where there's never a ghost or brag, but should old acquaintance be forgot, keep your eye on that grand old flag. The song started to be used when anyone was saying goodbye to anything. The end of a scout jamboree. It's played when a British colony lowers the flag and becomes independent. In Denmark, it's sung when people get a PhD, saying farewell to their college education. And in the Netherlands, a version with completely different words is sung at soccer games. In South Korea... It was the longtime anthem of the government in exile, and then, after World War II, for a short time, the national anthem of South Korea. The first commercial recording was in 1907 from Frank C. Stanley, who hailed not from Scotland, but the exotic locale of New Jersey. My dear, poor old lying sign, we'll take the right good But at some point, it became the song we share on New Year's Eve in England, the United States, and Canada. And it was in Canada where a young band leader named Guy Lombardo incorporated Auld Lang Syne into his New Year's Eve performance. It was 1927 when Lombardo and his band, the Royal Canadians, began headlining a New Year's Eve show in Chicago on WBBM. The following year, a young businessman named William S. Paley bought an even younger radio network and changed its name to the Columbia Broadcasting System. When WBBM became an early affiliate of the CBS radio network, word of the success of Lombardo's program on New Year's Eve made it to New York. CBS moved Lombardo's broadcast to the Roosevelt Hotel in New York City, and a national tradition of Old Lang Syne becoming the official song of New Year's Eve was born. Looks as though we started way back in the Depression days, and I was in the 30s. We used to broadcast from the Roosevelt Hotel on the Coast to Coast Network, and all anxiety, of course. So it's been a long, wonderful many years of Happy New Years. We played all through the Depression era. We played through the World War II period and after the war, and then we switched to television. Lombardo and his band continued the New Year's tradition for 50 years on CBS radio and television, creating a historic run of broadcasts that solidified his identity with New Year's Eve. 
To this day, Lombardo's music is played at Times Square as the New Year's countdown ball descends to bring in the new year. And people across the country sing, Should old acquaintance be forgotten, never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot, and days of old lang syne? And what about old lang syne? What does that mean anyway? Well, old is easy. It means old. Lang is the Scottish word for long, and syne means since. Old, long, since. Okay, the literal translation doesn't help much. Old, long, since can be better understood as days gone by, or the good old days. So, this holiday, let's raise a cup of kindness and toast to old Lang Syne, the only music Ludwig van Beethoven and Mariah Carey have in common. This is the holiday special from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the holiday special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. Holiday colors abound this time of year as people show their holiday spirit. And one way people splash green and red is with the ubiquitous holiday flower, the poinsettia. CBS Sunday Morning's Mark Strassman explores the history of how this red and green foliage imported from Mexico became America's most colorful Yuletide symbol. In Greenville, South Carolina, this 1905 craftsman-style home is a canvas of Christmas color. Are they in every room? They're in every room. <laughs> and every room's different color. Travis Seward and Wade Cleveland have a passion for poinsettias. Greenville has poinsettia pride. At the airport, new arrivals see it in this massive tree, more than 10 feet tall, built with 168 plants. You can't live in Greenville and be a part of the community and not understand that the poinsettia has a special place. They have the poinsettia parade for the Christmas parade. And so and a poinsettia hotel and a poinsettia bridge, which is very historic, and a poinsettia highway. So it's hard to miss that there is a connection. It's hard to miss in this house. Yes. <laughs> What's less obvious is the history of these plants, which grow wild in Mexico. In the 1500s, the Aztecs were the first to cultivate them. Franciscan missionaries arrived in the 1600s and thought the plant's red color symbolized the blood of Christ. They called it La Flor de la Noche Buena, or Christmas Eve flower. In Tasco, Mexico, this nativity parade earlier this month showcased the poinsettia's enduring power. Street mosaics in the city pay tribute to the plant. It is the Christmas plant. Jim Faust, a horticulture professor at Clemson University, is an authority on the plants. Poinsettia or poinsettia? Yeah, most academics and horticulturists will say poinsettia. Uh, Joel Poinsett himself said poinsettia. Poinsett, a 19th century politician, lived in Greenville. Joel Poinsett, who the plant is named after, uh, was the first ambassador of the uh, United States to Mexico. And he was an avid plants person, and so he was involved in the exchange of plants to and from uh, Mexico and the United States. And, and so he happened to, in 1828, uh, send the first poinsettias to this country. 
Americans became enamored of this plant that blooms only once around Christmas. It's really in the early 1900s when poinsettia has become unpopular that you start to see stamps and Christmas cards and stuff that really start to have much more of the red and green as the dominant colors. By the 1960s and 70s, U.S. greenhouses produced millions of them. Shades of red make up 90% of the $200 million market. Contrary to widespread belief, poinsettias are not poisonous to people or pets. If you taste the nectar on them, it tastes really good. It's, it's really sweet. It is sweet. <laughs> it's no, like honey. It is like honey. Yeah. Who knew? Consumers typically buy one or two. Travis Seward has bought more than 80. How do you know when to stop? He doesn't ever know when to stop. This has been the Holiday Special from CBS News Radio, produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhall with the assistance of Hunter Sense. I'm Gil Gross. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.